uh, streaming all right. It says we're connecting here. I'm getting connected to a couple different places. Cool. Alright, well it looks like we are live now, so um, welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. We've got another episode coming to you today, and uh, this is going to be a live stream with Timothy Morton, who we've had on before, uh, but we're going to be discussing, um, King, uh, not King James Cosmology is, is the name of the book that Tim has written on the subject, but it's going to be the subject uh, regarding ancient Israelite cosmology. Um, or you may have heard it called uh, Ancient Near East Cosmology. And uh, in this episode, we're going to engage some of the work that Michael Heiser has done on this particular subject in his, in his book, The Unseen Realm. Uh, there's another article that we're going to engage with as well, uh, along with uh, Tim's book, King James Cosmology. So uh, stay with us, and I'll be right back with you um, after our introduction video. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin to what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question my... that for, seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Alright, so welcome back. Let me get Tim up on the screen and we will get rolling here. Tim, I've got you up on the screen. So welcome back, and it's good to have you. Um, I'm really excited about talking to you about this particular subject. So, Well, it's good to be back. I think it was last September when we had our previous discussion, and uh, here it is the spring. We'll have another one, so uh, yep. should be interesting. Yep, it's been a while, and at the same time, it's kind of gone by somewhat fast. It Just so much has changed, especially in the last uh, month and a half or so. We were talking about it a little bit before we went live that you know life is just a little bit different these days um being on lockdown it seems like you know um if if you're working right now life life is it, it's really not changed a whole lot in that kind of the sense of being still being able to go to work and keeping a schedule in that sense but but um yeah it, i think that america looks a lot different right now and hopefully on the positive end um you know we'll see things start to change by the end of april but anyways how are you holding up out in west virginia right now Yes, it's uh, it's uh, nice and sunny out here today, and it's a nice day. But still, like you say, the world has changed. It's uh, it's different, and I'm, uh, I think it's going to be uh, it's not going to be the same at the end of this as it was at the beginning. Yeah, the Lord is trying to teach people some things. He's he he's got essentially he's got everyone every person on Earth's attention. Now, what they deal do with that, you know, is another matter. But he he is 
stop them in their normal routine and their normal really vain lives and made them just stop and pause. And now, like I say, it's up to each individual as to what they'll do with this, but uh, it is interesting times. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I know a lot of people are dying. I was 1500 died. Uh, we just, in the last 24 hours I heard and that's a lot of people yeah. and uh, you know it's a terrible for them but for society as a whole God has really been gentle with us I believe Yeah, he's been gentle with us he's wanting to get our attention so what we do with this is uh, may determine how it ends up yeah, you know what I was. Uh, I, we were talking a little bit about it even before we went live about the nu- the numbers that they're they're talking about and specifically what Fauci had had, had given in in the last uh, White House briefing and and uh, I really do. I hope it stays less than a hundred thousand on the low end. Um, you know, uh, I definitely less than the two hundred thousand. But but what they were projecting at the beginning with if with not doing anything at one point two to two point three million deaths alone in America alone. I mean, getting it to 100,000 to 200,000 is still a big number, but, um, you know, these, I guess these next couple of weeks is going to kind of be the key to seeing where it's going to turn and where it's going to go with that side of the conversation. But a friend of mine had, had put a post out on Facebook and he, he was talking about kind of, uh, God being in control of this whole thing and, and, uh, and all, you know, the idolatry of America with, in, with, with putting so many things ahead of God and seeing just how quick things can change overnight. I mean, sports have shut down, uh, kind of the consumerism has shut down. Um, so many of the, so much of the entertainment in industry has just shut down seemingly overnight. And it's like, gosh, man, things really can change that fast. And they have changed that fast. Uh, and I think that this is a time more than ever um, to really to really be able to, as Christians, one, lean into what our hope is in Christ, uh, but also to be able to extend that hope to those who are hopeless right now, because uh, it is a very hopeless situation for so many people all around the world. But, I mean, specifically even for your own neighbor. I mean, your own neighbor could be somebody that you can reach out to and extend a hand of hope to in, in some way. Uh, and there's different ways to do that, but, anyways, um, let's let's go ahead and dive into our our subject here today, which is going to be ancient Israelite cosmology. Uh, you have written a book on this called King James Cosmology, and uh, I'd like to take a second just to kind of give an, an introduction for some of the work that you have done, um, not just uh, on this particular subject, but also uh, you've created the Bible software program that I use and uh, that I use for this particular program for my Bible studies and different things like that. But you should be able to see it up on the screen here, guys. Uh, It's called Bible Analyzer. It's BibleAnalyzer.com. And I've got it on the module download manager area. But if you look, take a look here, you can see all the different Bibles, the books. Uh, You've got um, 19, 26 English, 19 non-English Bibles. A number of different books, and then a, a number of different bundles, and commentaries, and dictionaries, and and uh, lexicons, and images, and devotions. There's so much material on here, and it's so beneficial. Um, but I, let me give you an example of this as well, if I can, so you can actually see what the the Bible program looks like. This is what the the Bible software program actually looks like. I you can you can set it up and design it however you want it to be, but I've I've got my Bible here, 
and, and then a bunch of the different references that you can pull up over here. But you've got commentaries and dictionaries and then books and all this other stuff that, that comes up in these these categories. But what's what's great about it is you, you can do a parallel um, a, a parallel with this software to compare Bibles. Um, and you can also, just by putting your mouse cursor over an English word or a Greek word, it'll pull up the Strong's number and uh, the dictionary definition of it as well. So there's just so many good uh, tools to use with that, that uh, software program, and it makes my Bible study a lot easier. Um, so anyways, Tim, I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to um, kind of share with people who may be interested in, in looking into that, that Bible software, but... Um, uh, if you wanted to give uh, kind of a word on that, um, have at it. Okay. Yeah, the Bible Analyzer is a, a cross-platform Bible software. It works in uh, Microsoft Windows, Apple, Macintosh. It won't work on iPads. Now, it's a whole different operating system, but it will work on Macintosh system, which is what Josh uses, I believe, most of the time. And it'll also work on Linux, you know, the different Linux, Ubuntu and all the other Linux Mint and other. It'll work on those as well. But it's a Bible study program. It has a lot of features. Most people don't use all the features, but it has a lot of capability and a lot of features. And as uh, Josh said, that uh, you can download over 100 free modules from within the program. It's uh, there's many, many. There's over like about I think like 110 or 120 free modules, and then there's around 100 or so uh, modules you could purchase for a small price. But uh, it's, uh, the program itself is free. You just go to BibleAnalyzer.com and go to the Downloads page, download one for your operating system, and you're ready to go. There's a portable version if you want to stick it on a thumb drive and take it with you. that will work on Windows. But uh, I've been developing that now for about the last uh, close to 15 years, and the Lord's allowed me to continue with it. And uh, if I can, I'm going to continue on uh, you know, as much as I can. People are getting more interested in the Bible again. I'm just in the last few weeks, and maybe that's one of the reasons for this uh, present distress that we're going through. But I've been getting a little more activity. People are, are, you know, saying, "Well, what's what's the Bible say? What's the Bible say?" Someone showed a picture. I saw a picture in a Walmart in the book section. There was only two or three Bibles left wow. in the whole section. All the rest of them were gone, and uh, that's a good thing. You know, the the this. This uh, plague, if you want to call it, um, or flu, flu-like virus, it's a bad thing, but we're getting good results out of it. But if you have uh, a computer you want to use, it, you can download Bible Analyzer absolutely free, and if you like it, you can keep it. If you don't, you can delete it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Good, good, yeah. Um, let me cut to also a place where anybody who, want, who would like to uh, go to your website, which is uh, preservedwords.com. There's a there's a there's a place that you can go to look at the different books and articles and charts, a Bible tree, um, different topics that you have written on yourself. Um, and this is where you've got access to your book, The King James Cosmology, uh, which you've written on this particular subject that we're going to engage with in our conversation today. But um, if you wanted to take a second and talk about uh, preservedwords.com, kind of how long that's been around, why, why you started it, and, and how it could be helpful to people uh, regarding this conversation. Well, preservedwords.com, I started it back in the 
in the mid-90s, believe it or not. Back when, before they had broadband, before Google, before all the, the way the internet is now, you had dial-up internet. It was just a text-only pretty much page then. But I developed it to help uh, you know people defend also the King James Bible and also as to learn doctrine, to be able to establish doctrine from the Bible. And it has uh, quite a few articles on it that deal with uh, the Bible version issue and other things. More recently, I've been dealing with some of the uh, uh, more relevant topics of the day, which is like, you know, the flat earth, geocentrism, you know, cosmology and things, which seem to have really grown in just in the last few years. But it has other topics on there that deal with, uh, you know, basic doctrinal subjects. You can uh, click on them. It's got an articles page. He just got a books page and uh, other different categories of things that you can look at there. And it basically deals with just the uh, Bible doctrine, sound Bible doctrine, as much as we can determine it. And also deals with some of the controversial subjects that come along today. And like we say, the topic today is deals with, you know, the, the shape of the earth or the, the structure of the universe. What does the Bible have to say about it? Awesome. So, um, yeah, go check that out, guys. And there's a lot of good information in there. One of those articles that we're going to be dealing with today uh, is direct, it's not an article, it's a book, King James Cosmology. Go check that out. Um, but we're also going to engage with uh, some of the work that Michael Heiser has done on the subject uh, in Unseen Realm. Uh, but we do want to give you a chance at the end to call in if you would like to. Uh, the number to do that is going to be 816-866-0025. And when we get to that point, I'll put the number up on the screen. I can only take one caller at a time, uh, being that I, I'm doing all of this myself. I've got a, a forwarded number from a, a Google number that you can use, which is where that comes from, that you can use to access me. And uh, that means I don't have to give out my personal information to be able to do that. But it at least gives you a chance as a listener to engage with uh, Tim Morton on the subject. And uh, we'll, we'll be able to do that if you would like to call in at the end, you can. So anyways, let's, uh, let's go ahead and start out with kind of a bird's eye view um, of ancient Israelite cosmology. And then I want to narrow it down from there and uh, just get into some of the key passages and, and break those down uh, as well. So um, I guess the first question that I've got is, what would be the idea of reading the Bible through the lens of the audience and the timeline that it was written. So what I mean by that is so often you hear people say, well, in order to understand the Bible, you first have to look at it through the lens of the the first century reader. So who is the audience that it was written to? How would they read it? How would they understand it? And that's, that's the first key to understanding how you would interpret it and, and read it today. Um, but what would your take be on that uh, as far as interpreting the Bible and reading it from that perspective? Well, uh, my position, well, first of all, if you don't mind, I'll just let people know where I come from on this. Yeah. I mean, what the King James uh, Cosmology book is or what it deals with. And my position is the Bible does not make any dogmatic or definitive statements concerning the cosmology. It does speak a lot about it. It speaks a lot about the earth. It speaks a lot about the heavens. It speaks a lot about the relationship between the earth and the heavens. But it does not make any dogmatic or definitive statements concerning the cosmology. I mean, it uses purposely, I believe, ambiguous statements. It uses ambiguous statements that 
And this deals with the question that you ask that will work throughout the generations. It, see, it, if, you, if you look at Genesis 1-1 and the whole first chapter, you know, we're so used to seeing that. But if you look at it closely, it's not very specific at all. It doesn't tell how God did anything. It pretty much just gives you the results of what he's done. He doesn't give you any specifics. You go in chapter 2 where he creates man and creates Adam. He doesn't give you any specifics of how he created him, other than he brought him together from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. That's pretty much the extent of it. And that's, he, he limited it that way so it would be valid for the people that he was writing it to at that time, which would have been the early Hebrews, the Moses of course wrote Genesis he wrote the first five books of the Bible the scriptures and that was around 1500 BC now what did they believe in 1500 BC most likely and everything indicates and that's it's this idea that brings on a lot of these controversy today but again I don't want to jump ahead of things but I believe a person does have to look at the scriptures and somewhat through the eyes of the people that it was written to. That's one of the key fundamentals of, uh, of studying the Bible. I mean, who is it written to, and what did they realize? I mean, it's like, you know, the Bible doesn't speak about electricity at all, because Moses didn't know anything about electricity. He didn't know lightning was made out of electricity, and is, is, a, uh, is a huge the thunderbolt, they call it, is electricity, but he didn't know anything about it. But later on, people do understand about electricity. They do understand how things are made. The Lord reveals those things. It has to do with what I call progressive revelation. Now, a lot of people are familiar with progressive revelation as it deals with the scriptures. The God, God reveals things uh, over time. But when it comes to natural things, he also reveals things over time. He reveals at the beginning, he doesn't... He doesn't tell anyone anything that they didn't already know as far as science goes. He, he lets man learn those things himself. Now, you say, why does he do that? Why doesn't he uh, uh, say, well, why didn't he say that the earth was a globe? Well, he didn't want to. He, that was something he wanted man to discover. It wasn't until 2,000 years, well, actually almost 4,000 years after creation, that man finally figured out that the earth was a globe. And that was because of observation. Now we'll get into that a little more later, most likely. But still, he wrote and gave the words to Moses and gave the words to Moses to, you know, by the Holy Spirit, by inspiration, that Moses could understand. But the ingenious thing about it is he did not let Moses write things down in a definitive way that would contradict what he knew the actual facts were. See, a lot of people say, well, how, how could the Lord let people He doesn't let Jesus Christ and the disciples. They were with him nearly three years. They didn't even know why he came. They were, they thought he'd come to set a kingdom. They would come and set on front and the disciples thought that he was going to make all of those you know, princes in the kingdom. They didn't know anything about him coming to die on a cross, even after he, he told them. But the Lord allowed, believe, even he told them until the time came, until after the resurrection, 
that they actually understood that he came to die. They understood Isaiah 53 they, before they, they thought they did, but they really didn't. But then they found out who the lamb was. So a lot of people say God won't, won't let you believe something that not, might not be a fact at the time. Oh, yes, he does. Yes, he does. He does it all the time. Just like I mentioned the electricity. Moses didn't know lightning was electricity, but we know it is today. And it's, there's many examples of that. So I don't want to get ahead of myself, brother. But, but yes, I do believe that we have to look at the scriptures through the eyes as much as we can. And the scriptures do this themselves of the people that it was written to. We have to understand how it was, uh, the, who the audience was, and understand what they knew at the time as much as we can determine. Okay, so um, let me kind of address the, the first person perspective on understanding who the audience was. Because I, I think that that's a key to understanding the Bible. It's a proper hermeneutic. I think, obviously, you've got to be able to compare Scripture with Scripture. But you've got to know who the audience is. Who is he talking to? Uh, what's the context? Those kinds of questions. But but one thing that um, you know I've thought about often on this particular side of the conversation is is man you know what about what about the living side of the conversation with the bible i mean um obviously god is not out to give us a dissertation on on the shape of the earth the the shape of the cosmos um the trajectory of the earth moving in the cosmos or, or the cosmos moving around the earth or those sides of the conversation, even though so many people would, would try to take the conversation in that direction. And, and we'll get into that. But what about, what about the, the, the Bible being alive and being written to me and to you also? How would you address that side of the conversation and saying, well, it, it doesn't need to just be seen through the lens of the original audience, and I need to put myself in their perspective in order to have it apply to me. But what do you think about looking at the Bible um, from the side of, yeah, the Bible was also written to me and for me as well. Yes, most definitely. The Bible is for all of us. It's for our learning. You know, it's like Paul said, it's for our learning, for our understanding, but not not necessarily for doctrine. You know, you don't, the Lord told uh, uh, Noah to build an ark. Well, he didn't tell us to build an ark. See, doctrinally, Noah was to build an ark. Us, no, we're not to build an ark at all. Same way with Abraham. He told Abraham different things. This is the dispensationalism you find in the Bible. You'll find he told Moses to do certain things. He told David to do certain things. And they're all different from what he tells us. But we need to try to see the scriptures in the way that he gave it to, the, to them originally. But we also need to see how they apply to us today because they're eternal. Their eternal word. They, they have an application. And even though he told Noah to build an ark, we learn from that application. We're not supposed to build an ark. We learn from that application that God will protect and take care of his people. He will rescue them from wrath. It says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord, the message we learn from that is the Lord took care of his people. He rescued them. He judged the earth. And he's going to do the same thing again. And it's going to be in a different way, but he's going to do the same thing again. So it has application to us, even though it was not written directly to us. And it's like the cosmology deal. He spoke to uh, all the ancient, what we call ancient Hebrews, in a manner of understanding the Bible, or actually the, the world, the, uh, the relationship between 
the earth and the heavens and the stars and the sun and the moon and all that in a in a language that they could they could uh, fathom. He didn't come out there and say, "Well, you're all wrong. You're you're all wrong about the shape of the universe." Because I'm going to tell you how it is. He could have done that, but he didn't. He allowed he allows things to progressively come along, and he even uses the Gentiles, which are not Hebrews. See that the Lord, you know, says to the Jews, "Were committed the oracles of God. Everything that God has to say to man, you know, in a spiritual sense, in what you would call a relationship sense with him he said it to the hebrews he said it to the jews and they wrote it down that's how we have the old testament but the interesting thing is you'll find that it wasn't the jews at all that discovered the natural thing that was the gentile in early days it was on it was the europeans he let the gentiles discover the natural things which is rather fitting he lets the natural man discover the natural thing Remember way back there at the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel, the Lord said a fascinating thing. He said, let's go down there and confound their language because uh, nothing, they can do anything that they can, they're imagining to do. And those Gentiles, he said, we can't, it's not time for that right now. He said, we're going to have to shut them down. Now, there is a day coming where the Lord will let them do what they want to do. That'll be in a tribulation. And you'll see, <laughs> you read Revelation, you know what happens then. But that was too early. At the Tower of Bible, the Lord says, uh, they're getting too far ahead of themselves. We're going to have to slow them down. So what does he do? He confounds their language. And when their language is confounded, then that leads to all kinds of turmoil in the world. And that's the way the Lord wanted it. But yes, there is. He, The Lord speaks in the vernacular, so to speak, of the people that he is writing to in, in the in most cases, in some prophecy, he, the, even the, uh, the Lord would give them words and prophecies even the prophets couldn't understand, as Peter says. You know, the yeah. prophets, the Lord would give them something to say, and they'd they kind of go, what? I mean, it's like in Ezekiel. You know, in Ezekiel, you'll find Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, you'll find this, they call it like a UFO in there. No, no one really knows what yeah. that is. This uh, thing with the spinning wheels and all that, you'll find all kinds of people come up with these ideas. No one really knows what that is. Now, Ezekiel seems like he, he was kind of nonchalant about it. He just, yeah, well, I saw this and saw that, like he knew what it all meant. Well, but I've never read anyone that knows what it means. Not yet. That's something that the Lord has yet to reveal. Yeah. And so you'll find that through there, we have to consider what he originally, the people he originally said, uh, spoke to, but it is living in the sense that it has an application to all of us in the way that it was intended. I didn't mean to ramble on there, but... No, you're I good. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, and so we've got Gary uh, Whitehouse who had messaged and he said, hey, uh, I really appreciate your show and and appreciate he appreciates the book that you wrote on dispensations as well. So um, Gary, shout out to you on that. But let's look at a little bit about Michael Heiser's words where he describes this. In his book on uh, it's the unseen realm, uh, I pulled this particular quote up from uh, the website moreunseenrealm.com, uh, which you can see here. But he says this: he says the Western believing church is is bending under the weight of its own rationalism, a modern worldview that would be foreign to the biblical writers. He says that on page 17. So how do we solve this? You stop. 
And he says, stripping the bizarre passages of anything that makes it bizarre. He says that on page 18. And, he's, and then he goes on, he says, rather, if it's weird, it's important. This is Heiser's purpose in writing The Unseen Realm. And uh, he, he says he, he wrote it to get to to get their supernatural worldview into your head, where, which he says on page 13. And he says that uh, this particular book, The Unseen Realm, is a rereading of the bi biblical stories with eyes open to the, the supernatural world. But um, I, I personally, I, I see that angle, just like what you and I are talking about here, um, that the Bible is a book uh, that was written to a particular people at a particular time, and it's relevant to the, that particular um, perspective and, and what they were, what they would have understanded, uh, understood rather. Uh, but I don't think that God would write in a perspective that is a lie. I mean, if it's if if the, if it, it is true that that the earth is a sphere, and He's teaching these ancient Israelites that it's flat, I I personally look at that and say, man, that seems like God is telling these people a lie so that He can reach them on a level that they would understand. Uh, being that if he were to tell them, you know what, guys, you don't live on a flat earth, you live on a spherical earth, and it's traveling at 238,000 miles uh, um, an hour through outer space, and it's got a, uh, a rotation around the sun that's even faster than that, and, and these other planets are, are rotating around the sun, and the sun is rotating around the, the Milky Way galaxy. Um, and the Milky Way galaxy is rotating in, 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 in that side of the conversation where we would say, yeah, that's the cosmology we look at today. That's what we're taught. That's what must be true. Um, but God wouldn't do that because they wouldn't understand it. So he teaches them at a level they would understand and, and would give you the impression that the earth is flat. Um, so that would kind of be uh, how Michael Heiser would teach that, that God is writing the Bible on a level that they would understand, um, so that he's he he's not communicating something to them through confusion. But, uh, anyways, all of that to be said, what what's your take on that? Do you think that God is it, obviously you've already said it, God's got vague terminology on on uh, the shape of the earth, the cosmology of of the universe, and those sorts of things. But what would you do with that that side of the conversation there? Well, it's like I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, where people say, well, God is deceiving them. But no, he's not deceiving them. He's, he's just telling them in rational ways that what they will accept. See, the words aren't wrong. It's their assumptions of them that's wrong. And see, this is, uh, the, you know, the, you, took through the, you can look through the Bible and you can look through uh, all the passages with the flat earth people will use. And when you put all those together, they can come up with a what looks like a rational, flat-earth cosmology. So, well, this is what the Bible says. But it, it's what the Bible allows, and that's the big difference. The Bible accommodates a flat earth. The Bible also accommodates a global earth. That's what I mean when I say that the Bible is not definitive in stating. See, you can, you can go through the Bible and you can see what it's definitive about and what it isn't. It's like the first verse in the Bible, God created the heaven and the earth. That's a definitive statement. That's a dogmatic doctrinal statement that God is a creator, that the earth was created. That right there destroys evolution. That destroys the, this uh, uh, Big Bang theory. It says, in the beginning, God created. That's a definitive statement. And we know that he made the heaven and the earth. 
What's vague is how he made it. What's vague is actually how the earth was formed. It's, it's not as cut and dried as some people would like to make you believe. You go through and read it, you'll find it in verse 2, there's just water. There's just water. Now, we're not going to get into debate where the water came from, but we know that God created it. We know that God made the water. Yeah. And then where does the earth come from? The earth comes up out of the water. Now, a lot of people bring a lot of their presuppositions into there, and that's just like today. People will read that and it says God created the heaven and the earth. They think, well, the earth is there as a round ball. Well, I will tell you right now, the Bible never presents the earth as a, as a planet. It never does. The Bible never presents the earth as a planet. It presents the earth as the earth. Now, how's earth defined? You'll find that in Genesis 1, verses 9 and 10. It's defined as dry land. That is what earth is. It says right there, and God called the dry land earth. He named it. And see, that already, if you put away your presuppositions, put away your assumptions, and we all have them. We all have them. And the flat earth, the people, the Hebrews, they had their assumptions too. See, you can take people. It's like today. The, it's, the words are not wrong, and God is not deceiving people because you can have people with their different set of assumptions and presuppositions will read Genesis 1, chapter 1, and come up with two entirely different ideas. The ancient Hebrews would read that and say, there's the flat earth. You'll take, take the creation scientists today. They would read that and say, no, that's not a flat earth at all. That's the global earth. It's all because of the presuppositions that they bring into the text. But if you just let the text speak on its own, if you'll let the text just say what it says, there's no earth until you get to verses 9 and 10. All there is is a vast amount of water. I know, Josh, you probably got the, the, old, the image there somewhere of what the Hebrew idea of the their cosmology was and it was just a it was a a patch of earth like an island and this island has a dome over it and the dome has water above it and also there is water under the earth that's the part a lot of people forget and that's the part that the flat earth people forget too you know you, the, the flat earth people like to talk on you know, about the earth being this flat pancake with a dome over. But they seem to forget that the Bible presents the, flat, the earth, if you're going to use it, if you're going to interpret it as a flat earth, that it has water underneath it as well. And it's like, if, if you want to try to get a visual uh, illustration of it, and you all know what a snow globe is. I don't have one here, but the snow globe, the little globe that you could, uh, that's in a uh, glass or crystal sphere, that has a little house and village in it, you shake it and the snow's in there. Well, that's kind of like how the Hebrews understood the earth to be. But that's not the complete picture. Because if you want a complete picture, you would have to take that snow globe and put it into a bucket of water. You would take that snow globe and put it halfway into a bucket of water with water under it and water above it and water around it to act to actually show how it's viewed in Genesis chapter 1. Here's an interesting thing some people probably have, have kind of overlooked when they even go to read the Ten Commandments. 
you know, over there where the Lord speaks about how that thou shalt not make unto me any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Fascinating, isn't it? It says the water under the earth. It says that in two different places. The, the flat earth people never deal with that issue because they can't, they can't devise a model that works. Yeah. I mean, the models that they show now will not work. They can be demonstrably proven that they will not work. And, they can't, and that's not even with adding the water to it. But so what does God do? He just gives information in Genesis chapter 1 and in other places in the scripture that will accommodate the flat earth view and will also accommodate the global earth view. That's the reason he is very careful. That's the reason we, we know that the scripture is not written by man. Man can never think that far ahead. Man can never figure that out. I mean, but here the Lord is saying, I have, I'm telling you what I'm doing. I'm not giving you the details of what I'm doing. For all you people out there that believe in the flat earth, it, it's, going, it's going to line up with you, with those of you that understand that the world later on centuries down the road that understand that the world is not flat, well, it's going to work for you too. So there's no deception at all. It's just accommodation. Okay, so um, there's a couple of things. Obviously, there's a lot to address and, and come back to in, in, in what you just stated there. Um, but I think what I'm gathering is you're saying that it's, it's, not a, it's not a statement of fact on whether or not the earth is or is not flat or round or spherical or geocentric, or heliocentric, or whatever the model may be, but that it's an accommodation for for what they do understand it to be, and that that the ancient Israelites would have understood the earth to be flat. Am I am, am I gathering? That's what kind of the side of the what you're communicating is. Yes, yes, that that's correct. That that sums it up uh, rather well. You know, he's accommodating what they understand, and he accommodates what we understand. See. I'm not saying that right now that we're the end-all and know-all and know, know everything about the universe. We don't. Heliocentrism, which is a sun-centered universe, which is not really true because the, the sun's not the center of the universe. It's just the center of the solar system. That might not be the last word either. That's just the way we understand it now. The Lord may, if he, if he leads us on here, he may bring something else and let someone discover something else that'll put heliocentrism on its head. See, that's the reason the, the Lord is just giving us the basics, and he's not, he, he's not saying that any cosmology is right or wrong. He's just stating what he did in a way that'll accommodate almost all of them. Okay, um, so that's fair enough. That's a good answer. Um, and, and I can see that I can, I'll tell you this. I was, uh, years ago, probably back in 2016, 2017, I really was getting into this cause it was, it was new to me and, and that side of the, like, gosh, man, people actually believe the earth is flat. Like, why do they believe this? There's gotta be some good arguments for why they would believe that. Like what, what really is going on that they're looking at that I'm not looking at to think that the earth may be flat. And if the Bible is teaching that the earth is flat, well, I mean, the Bible wouldn't have scientific errors in it. So why why would why would the Bible have scientific errors in it if if the Bible's teaching the Earth is flat? 
Um, if it is, then I mean, I want to believe that. So I looked at the Bible verses, and I looked at a lot of the, the scientific ex experiments that, that a lot of the flat earthers do, and obviously there's a big conspiracy side of it too, that that you know NASA is, is deceiving us, it's a deceitful program, they've never been to the moon, they've never sent anybody to outer space, that they've never broken through the, the, the dome, the firmament, and, and those, those sides of, of that perspective of the conversation, but um, I actually engaged with uh, some of some scientists who were creating what they were what they were trying to come up with working models for how the earth could be flat uh, with the rotation of the sun and, and the location of of uh, the land masses on the sea and, and and how that would work and and I, I had been emailing back and forth with them I'm like how does it work in this side of the model how does it work in this side of the model and uh, finally we came to, to one of the questions that I said man if you can answer this question right here right now I'll become a flat earther today. Like I'll just drop it. I'll I'll drop the heliocentrism. Like I'll be I'll be a flat earther. Um, and the question was, well, how how come in your model it, it has no way of accounting for uh, the two week period of 24 hours of sunlight on the South Pole? Because obviously it, it should be able to account for it on the North Pole, but 20 with the, with the, the models that you've got on the flat Earth, it's impossible to have uh, 24 hours of sunlight at a South Pole. And you'll never believe it, but uh, the, the scientific answer that I got was, um, well, we don't know for sure, but it would appear that there's a second light source that's unknown. Uh, so that would be the, the answer for how you would scientifically have um, 24 hours of sunlight at the South Pole from a, a flat Earth perspective, and it's just something that, that they haven't discovered yet. Um, but, but when it comes to the biblical side of the conversation, I want to get back to... Um, kind of what Michael Heiser is saying on this. He says, and uh, let me pull this up on the screen for you guys to see as well. Um, this is in his section on, there it is, Genesis and, and uh, Ancient Near East Cosmology, where he says, Proper interpretation of the Bible requires an understanding of the original context in which it was written. Uh, th this is particularly true for the Old Testament. God chose a specific time, place, and culture in which to inspire faithful persons to produce what we read in the Old Testament, the ancient Mediterranean and the ancient Near East of the 2nd and 1st centuries BC. Understanding their worldview leads to more faithful understandings on our part, as misreadings result from assuming the biblical writers thought, believed, and acted as we do. Uh, then he goes on, he says, unfamiliar to us, uh, the world would have been even more unfamiliar to the students of the Bible living before the late 19th and 20th centuries. The languages of the ancient Sumerians, Babylonians, Egyptians, and Canaanites were deciphered for the first time only in the past 200 years. The intimate relationship between the Old Testament and the literature and ideas of these civilizations became accessible only after such developments in ancient language studies. This opened an extraordinary window for understanding what the biblical writers meant. These connections significantly impacted our understanding the early chapters of Genesis. Now, um, you say this on the subject, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Geocentrists often use this verse to prove the earth is stationary. Since the Spirit of God is the object moving in the passage, they often uh, glibly say something like, what about where it says the Spirit uh, moved on the face of the earth in Genesis 1-2, the face of the deep? That shows that God does the moving and the earth is stationary. So have you ever heard such a contrived statement 
designed to bolster a pet argument, regardless of what the scriptures actually say. And then he says, let's go into taking a look at that claim a little bit. But um, I've done kind of a lot of talking here and going to what uh, what Michael Heiser is saying on on the subject. And it seems like you and you and him are agreeing in a lot of uh, a lot of areas when it comes to um, kind of the accommodation side of of um, the, the flat earth perspective of the ancient Israelites and the objective that God's not trying to give a scientific lesson on on cosmology. Um, but how would you how would you respond to what he is saying? You know, some people use like a geocentrist to say, well, the Holy Spirit's moving, so the the Earth must be stationary. Um, that people will look at kind of proof texts like that uh, to make their point. Well, it's it's one of the arguments that the geocentrists and and let me kind of clarify here the geocentrists from the flat earthers for those that that are not so familiar with it. The geocentrism is the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe. Now, this is just what you call strict or plain geocentrism, or geocentricity, some of them like to call it. And they're saying that the Earth is unmovable. The Earth is is affixed in the center of the universe. And the entire universe revolves every day. The entire universe revolves around the Earth. Now, the flat earthers, in in a very different sense are geocentrists because they believe that the earth is has a dome over it that has the heavens over the flat earth there's nothing under the earth so to speak everything is above the earth because if you ever want to see some quarrels on the internet that are comical if you want to see the global geocentrists see the strict geocentrists believe that the earth is a globe they believe it is round they believe that it's a sphere, and they believe that the entire universe revolves around the Earth. And they, you have the, the, between those and the flat Earthers quarreling, it's like watching watching two brothers fight in the back of a car. It's interesting to watch them because one is saying the other one doesn't believe the Bible. And you know, the geocentric the Bible, because the Bible says that the Earth stationary. And the flat earthers will say to the geocentrists, saying, well, you don't believe the Bible because the Bible says that the earth is flat. But then that's there. About the geocentrists, they'll use uh, the verse there in the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters to say, well, it was at the earth. Where in the verse does it say the earth's not moving? Yeah. See, this is a kind of a logical reasoning that it, it's irrational reasoning. There is nothing the earth is not moving. It just says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And the thing is, nearly every geocentrist I've ever dealt with, when they quote that verse, they say, look here, the earth is not moving. The earth is not moving. There's no earth in that verse. Yeah. The only thing that's in that verse is water. And, and they, they do this all the time. There is no... To the Hebrew, now to the Hebrews, when it's when it talks about the deep, all there was was this big, vast level, like what we would call it, a plain of water. That's all there was was just water. But to the geocentrists and, to, and even today, the you know the Christian scientists and and all of those today, they would say, well, there's an Earth there with a say an Earth core that is just flooded with water. And and that that's that's strict assumptions. 
I mean, when you look at the verse itself, the only thing you really see in the verse is just water. And there was this water, and then all some water to, to in a sense, float, I mean, some earth to float up out of the water. And it became salt. Then he made a firmament over the earth, right, the water from the water. That's, kind of, that's the snow globe part. Well, you'll have the others that will look at that and say, well, the, here was a, the earth full of water, or flooded with water, and then the Lord recreated, some, some created, others say recreated, and brought earth, you know, moved the water around to where the earth was visible again. All assumptions. See there what I mean by saying that it is, it is vague? It is very vague. It's ambiguous. Because it's not definitive in my hand. What we know from that verse, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. It doesn't say anything about an earth. You'll say, well, the earth is mentioned in verse 1. Yes, but the vagueness there is verse 1 could, and it could, and, it, and there's strong indication that verse 1 could be just a summary statement. He's saying, well, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and it's like saying in verse 2, and here I did it. Because when you get to, to chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord says, and the Lord finished the creation of the heavens and the earth. It's like it's how the Lord did it is sandwiched in between two summary and concluding statements. Others will say, well, the Lord actually created the earth there. But, you see, that's, that, that bolsters my whole point. It's ambiguous. People bring their assumptions and think their assumptions are true. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But two conflicting assumptions can't be true. And it's like the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. That says nothing about the earth, and it says nothing about the earth not moving. Um, okay, so let's look at, uh, there. there's a review by a guy named Lindsay Kennedy, and it's, uh, it's from mydigitalseminary.com. And he says this about Heiser's interpretive method and the results it's bound to lead to along with the dangers presented. Now, this is his perspective. It's going to challenge a little bit of Heiser's perspective and uh, your perspective as well. And I want to get your take on it. And, and then and then I want to look at um, what you discuss in your book on King James cosmology after that. But he says, albeit for a book so amb ambitious, some missteps are unavoidable. Heiser wants us to throw away all our filters and let the Bible speak for itself. While he means well, and obviously I wouldn't disagree with that, you need to let the Bible speak for itself. While he means well, being totally untethered from traditions and accountability is arrogant and dangerous. Rather than reject our heritage, it's better to submit it to Scripture and adjust accordingly. Obviously, you can see the, the uh, context of the connection here with pitting tradition against Scripture. Uh, but he says, it's ironic that Heiser is effectively replacing one filter, uh, church tradition, for another, the supernatural worldview. And this leads to some conclusions that appear to be favored simply because they are the most quote-unquote supernatural or worse quote-unquote strange. At times, Heiser presents a worldview as being beyond critique simply because it supposedly reflects the ancient worldview, as he likes to put it, unlike the alternatives which would be modern. This is a rhetorical sleight of hand that avoids argumentation. My view is right because it's the most ancient. And it, it seems like what this what this um, this 
I guess a blogger is, is doing in his review of Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, is saying like, listen, he's moving the goalpost. Um, and I, and just from what I can gather, I would say that this author is probably Catholic with all the, the references to uh, tradition over scripture and, and putting scripture alone as our, our source for getting our information. But um, regardless, I do think that he makes a good point where he says, it seems like uh, we're, we're, we're setting up a new standard. And that new standard is whoever has the most ancient perspective and who, who can put their mind into um, what they will be able to tell you is the ancient perspective now has the credibility to give you an interpretation on 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 what any particular Bible verse is teaching. Or in this, in in what's relative to this conversation, is the Bible teaching a flat Earth, geocentric Earth, heliocentric Earth? Um, because we get to tell you what the ancient perspective actually was. So, what would your what would your response be to uh, the words of the blogger, and 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 then um, kind of my response to it? Well, I agree. He sounds like that he's probably a Roman Catholic because they put a lot of emphasis on church tradition. And but I would have to say, you know, he does. He seems to like yourself. He seems to think that it's wrong to let the Bible speak for itself. But that's the very first thing you, a person needs to do when studying. Let it speak for itself. Now, you cross references. You similar words, similar phrases. Forth, scripture turned forth. So that uh, his arguments. Uh, I mean, he says that he he appears like he doesn't like the supernatural worldview. Now I don't know if that means that he believes in evolution. It's like I know that Pope John Paul said back in the seventies or eighties that Genesis was a myth. Now I don't know if that's the official Roman Catholic doctrine or not, but he did say Genesis was a myth at least the first nine chapters. And so if it's a myth, well, then it's, it's fantasy land. It's a fairy tale. But I don't believe it's a myth. I believe it's, it's doctrinally accurate as far as it goes. But where it's ambiguous, it's ambiguous. And where it's vague, it's vague. And we need to, to quit trying to read our little ideas into it. That's a problem we all have. I have it. Everyone has You want to read your own little ideas into the text. And it happens a lot in Genesis chapter 1. But if we just let it speak for itself, we'll find out that it may not say near as much as we'd like for it to say, but it says what it says, and what it says is true. Okay, so let's uh, let's take a second to transition from that perspective into uh, some of what you've written in your book on King James cosmology. And, and I think one of the differences that you and I would have in this, in this particular conversation and what the Bible is teaching about the earth being flat is, is I, don't actually, I don't believe from my side that the Bible is teaching that the earth is flat. I think that what you're saying is, is uh, true, that people are reading into it that that's what the Bible is teaching. I, I don't think that it is teaching that. Um, and, and particularly when you're when you're talking about the cosmology of of uh, the waters above the earth and below the earth and being separated by a firmament, a firmament, I don't think that that's describing the earth, but I think it's describing something even greater in in the vastness of uh, the universe. So when uh, outer space, it would be some place out in outer space where you've got a, a vast uh, amount of water that is separated by a firmament that would be hard and. And uh, some people would speculate that that's a sea of glass that's separating, that's separating the third heaven from the second heaven. And then you've got the atmosphere that's not a firmament. Um, it, it, 
but it would be it would be the separation between outer space and the earth um it, so that would be one difference in saying well it's not describing a dome around the earth it's describing um it, it's describing something out in outer space that would separate the waters um from in, in the heavens but let's but i do want to look at because you, you give a really bit a good description and a background in your book uh on um it, which you can access at preservedwords.com and uh, you, you talk about kind of the anthropomorphisms of, of God being described in the Bible. And it seems like you tie that into uh, the interpretive method of, of what a geocentrist or a flat earther would use in describing um, their kind of pet, uh, their pet doctrines or whatever they want to believe about the shape of the earth and bringing it to the Bible. Um, so why don't you take a, just a second, if you could, and describe... Um, what you're what you're talking about and why it was important to describe these anthropomorphisms as it's related to um, ancient Israelite cosmology. Okay, I will. I just like to clarify one thing. You said that I I'm saying that the Bible teaches that the Earth is flat. No, that's not that's not the same thing. I'm no I know it's a fine line. I don't say the Bible teaches that the Earth is flat. I'm saying that the ancient Hebrews understood it mm. to say that the earth was flat. When they looked at it, they would see flat earth. When they looked at it, they would see flat earth. When you and I look at it, I don't see flat earth. I could see how they could get flat earth out of it. I can see how they could get it out of it. But now we have a lot more revelation, natural revelation, than what they had then. See, one thing about the Hebrews, they weren't travelers. You know, they didn't have ships and go all over the world. They pretty much stayed at home. The Greeks and the others, they traveled all over the place, learned things, discovered things. The Hebrews stayed at home when God, you know, revealed things to them. But no, that just to clarify, I don't I don't say that the Bible teaches that there is a flat earth. Okay. I like good, I said at the, at the beginning, I I think it's ambiguous. It 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 doesn't teach any of them. It just accommodates several of them. It may even accommodate beliefs that we don't even know of yet if the Lord lets things go go on longer. It's all in the perspective of the reader. But anyway, you mentioned, you asked the question about how, you know, I brought in on, on the book about some of the figurative language in the Bible and anthropomorphisms of God and how it speaks about him. It's like, you know, the Bible is full of figurative language and that that is another topic that that's a really relevant topic that should be addressed more than it is because you know kind of the crowd i used to well i run around with or i'm associated with is the bible believing crowd and and you know the king james people and there's a certain segment of them which i call hyper literalists and what i mean by that is is they take everything literal as much, I mean, even things that's, that's ridiculous, they take them literal. And they'll make statements like saying, I believe that you should take every word in the Bible as literal unless it's impossible to do so. Well, that's going to get you in all kinds of trouble. Yeah. That's going to get you in all kinds of trouble. You don't use the impossibility standard to find out if you take something literal or not. You take the context standard. You read the context of the scripture. You understand the context and what it's trying to say, and then from that you determine if it's using figurative language or literal language. And the Bible is absolutely, it's just, 
it's people don't realize how much figurative language it is. Say, for instance, remember Adam and Eve when they ate of the tree of the garden? When they ate of the tree, it says, well, when they ate of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says, and their eyes were open. And a lot of people think about that, and they just go on. But think about that just yeah. a minute. No, that's a good point. Is that literally true? No. No, it's not. They weren't created blind. They were created physically blind. They could see. Adam could see before that. Eve could see before that. When it says their eyes were opened, that is talking about that they were illuminated inside to a new truth. And that's the Bible's way of saying that. And now see, the right there, that fails the impossibility test right there. Could God have created them with their eyes shut? Yes, <laughs> yes. Could he waited to a certain time before their eyes were literally, their little eyes were literally open? Yes, yes, but he didn't. That's figurative language, and yep. it's all through the Bible. And it's like what you mentioned about God and his, uh, how he sometimes describes himself. And I'll just read a little passage, the passage that you got up here. It says, from the physical perspective, God is said to have a face. He's said to have a hand, and this hand has tattoos on it. If you want to, look at Isaiah 49, 16. It says there's things engraven on his hands. He stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth, it says. It says he keeps his eye on the land. It says he smells. It says he holds his tongue. It says the earth is his footstool. I mean, does a spirit have a foot like that? Does a, does a spirit have a footstool? Spirits don't have all these attributes. These yeah. are human attributes that the Lord uses so he can speak to us people that have all those things more effectively. He says, I see you. Well, you know, we see through our eyes, but God sees things uh, a lot more than what eyes can see. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's something that has to be dealt with and it has to be acknowledged and understood all this vast amount of figurative language and put it in perspective as the way the Lord used it. It's not, and it's also relative language. When the Lord, when the Bible writes and none said it and all of that, it's, there are, it's usually the same way the newspaper uses it. And those people that write the newspaper don't believe actually sets and rises. They, they believe that the earth is spinning. That's relative language. The Bible uses it all the time. There's one passage over there in Exodus that speaks about the sun waxing hot. Now, this one will confound some of the geocentrists. They will say, well, here the sun, the Bible says the sun rises. The Bible says the sun sets. The Bible says the sun moves. The Bible says that, well, you go over there and it says the, the sun gets hotter during the middle of the day. When the sun waxes hot in the middle of the day. If you take that phrase, just as literal as they're taking the sun rising and setting, it means that the sun would actually have to increase in its temperature and then decrease in its temperature. And any person that thinks about that would understand that's absolutely impossible because it's the hot time of the day is at a different time than it is at another part of the earth. Yeah. So again, this has to do with the figurative language. And as you said, I mentioned all that because it's something that a person has to have established. To understand that the Bible does that a lot, to be able to understand how it's speaking about, you know, the sun and the moon and the heavens and all of those things. It, it's they're 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 tied together. 
Okay, so um, I think that I'm understanding your perspective a little bit more. You're not saying that the Bible teaches the earth is flat. You're not saying the Bible teaches the earth is a heliocentric model or a geocentric model. You're saying that, that God is describing things to us, and in that first century ancient Israelite perspective, they could read um, what was written in Scripture and, and understand or walk away with or, or keep their own perspective on the flat earth, and they would still be right. Or the geocentrist could, could keep their perspective on, uh, on the geocentric model and, and look at the Bible and pull out what they're reading in the Bible and say, well, the Bible is geocentric. Uh, and the same for the heliocentric. So am I, kind of, am I kind of getting your point there, or am I still off a little bit? No, no, you're, you're getting real close to it now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, it, uh, that, that's the idea. It's not that the words, the words are right. The Bible is always right. It's just the ambiguity of the words allows people of different cultures, of different generations to derive different things from it. And the Hebrews got the flat. And so they, they didn't think, the Hebrews didn't think of geocentrism as the geocentrisms do today. They thought it was flat. And then you have the the people that are convinced that the earth is a globe, well, then they had to come up with an idea to accommodate that as much as possible. And so they come up with the geocentrism and say the earth's a globe, but it's still the center of the universe. They're kind of splitting it. Yeah. Actually, come along about 400 years ago. And they're saying, well, no, but we can demonstrate and most effectively, actually, that it's actually the Earth is orbiting the sun and other planets are orbiting or other moons are orbiting other planets, which actually through a, uh, the, the old geocentrism cosmology on its head back with Galileo. I mean, we'll talk about that a little later, but that's one of the most pivotal points in man's history was what Galileo saw in the 1600s, in the first decades of 1600s. That turned the whole world on its head. More than just about anything ever discovered by man. You're getting my perspective on it. Um, it's the Bible is right in what it says because it's ambiguous. If it come right out and said the Earth is flat, it's flat as a pancake, and all of that, well, then the heliocentrists are wrong. Then the geocentrists are wrong. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It accommodates all of us. And like I say, if who knows what might be discovered, look how much has been discovered in the last hundred years. It's, it's mind-boggling. Who knows what might be discovered in these lines in, in the next hundred years if we, the Earth lasts that long. And, it, and the Bible will accommodate that too, I'm convinced. Because it's not wrong. It just accommodates our understanding. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about progressive revelation a little bit. You've mentioned progressive revelation. And as it's related to this conversation on, on the cosmology of the ancient Israelite or the cosmology of a 21st century American um, or wherever you're at in the world, um, how, uh, how does progressive revelation play into that side of the conversation? Is, is the Bible progressively revealing to us the cosmology of our universe? Or is the Bible 
um, revealing to us progressively um, in conjunction with scientific discovery. I think a lot of people are looking at the Bible and going, man, I just want to believe what the Bible teaches about the cosmology. And if it teaches it's flat, I'm going to be a flat earther. If it teaches it's geocentric, I'm going to be geocentric. If it's heliocentric, same thing. Uh, we just want to know what is the Bible teaching about cosmology. And it seems like you're saying it's ambiguous. It's not giving a definitive statement on it, but it does have an element of progressive revelation in it. So if you could um, touch on that a little bit more, and then I want to get into a little bit more of the transition from the anthropomorphism description that you give in your book to the, the flat earth perspective, and then touch on a few specific verses, um, and then go from there. So if you could touch on that for a minute. Well, the progressive revelation ideas, it has to do with the Lord's things to man, basically, in three ways. I mean, how you learn something, how you acquire something, comes in three ways. And that is, number one, through the scriptures. I mean, the scriptures are the word of God, and they're what God has to say to us. That's beyond dispute to anybody that believes the Bible at all. The second way is through a person's conscience. The Holy Spirit can talk to you through your conscience. He can convict you when things are right or wrong. It speaks over there in Romans chapter 2 about these things. You know, your, your, your conscience will excuse you or allow you to do things. That's something that animals and other things don't have. That's something that only man has. And the Lord will reveal things to you. That's how people that have never had a Bible and never heard of God can know that certain things are wrong. It's just a universal trait of conscience. Now, a person's conscience can be seared. Paul says it can be seared with a hot iron. Now, you talk about figurative language there. Those are two entirely different realms. How could you sear a conscience with a hot iron? That's in, that's in, you can't even imagine such a thing. But we still know what Paul's saying, don't we? That's the power of figurative language. But the third way that the Lord reveals things is through nature. And David said this emphatically. He said over 19, uh, Psalms 19.1, the heavens show forth the glory of God and the firmament his handiwork. And there we see, when you look into the sky, when you look into the heavens, that the heavens tell you that there is a God. When you look at a tree, a tree tells you that there is a God. But specifically, it mentions the heavens. And so when you look up into the purpose, one of the purpose that that sky is there, and you look up and see the stars, is to tell you that some uh, being, which of course is God himself, created that. And so there, that tells us that we can learn things from the natural world. That's the re revelation of nature. Now, Jesus Christ said something very interesting one time. And a lot of people miss this. But he speaks about, you know, he's the Bible does not have anything good to say much about mankind. Because he's fallen. When Adam ate of the tree, he fell. And he got the, you know, he sinned. He's got the evil nature. We're all sinners. And the Bible doesn't whitewash us. It doesn't say, you know, oh, you're all basically good, just have this little problem. No, it says we're all sinners. We in live in an evil world. But in, in an interesting way, the Lord gives a compliment to the natural man. And 
he said over in Luke chapter 12, verse 54, and he said also to the people, when ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straight ye say, there cometh a shower, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, ye say, there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. But how is it that ye do not discern this time? Now, to me, that's a very profound statement. It's, that's, that's kind of a backwards compliment. He's complimenting them because they can tell the weather. He's complimenting them because you all can understand the earth. You all can understand the sky. You just don't know what's going on in your own hearts. You don't know what's going on you know, in the, in the world at this time. But you all sure got it figured out about how natural things were. And if yeah. that was true then, what about now? What about now? But that's the progressive revelation. The Lord allows the natural man to discover natural things, the things that he would not allow the natural man back at the Tower of Babel to yet discover. The first person to really understand that the earth was round was two or three hundred years before Christ. He was a Greek. And Paul was probably familiar with that. You know, this was... This was probably two or three hundred. Paul knew he was a well-educated man. He knew what the Greeks taught, but he doesn't say one way or the other because it's really irrelevant to what God wants to do. God deals with people's souls. God deals with people's hearts and their eternal destiny. He's not much concerned about how the earth works. To him, that's just nonchalance. Oh, well, you all don't need to really know that anyway. What you find <laughs> out, I'll let you find out. But it, uh, he says, that's not my concern. And, but man is very inquisitive in those things. And I mentioned Galileo before, but Galileo in the 16, the first century of the 1600s, and that's interesting because that's the very, or in the first decade of the 1600s, it's interesting because that's the very decade that the King James Bible was translated. It was translated from 1603 and came out in 1611. You know, it began in 1603. Well, in 1608, some Dutch eyeglass makers got to messing around with some eyeglass lenses and found out they could make a telescope. They developed the first telescope. Galileo, which is an Italian, he found the plans. They were scattered around Europe. He found the plans and made his own telescope that was even better. And they called those spy glasses back then because people used them to spy on their neighbors. <laughs> Galileo didn't have any interest in his neighbors. He wanted to look up into the sky. And when he looked up into the sky, he discovered four things that absolutely turned the cosmological world and the religious world in his head. Now, you notice, now, the Lord allowed that to happen. The Lord said, okay, it's time. I'm going to let them see it. I'm going to let them figure it out. It's, it's been true all along before then. I mean, what Galileo saw was the same sky that Abraham looked up in when God told him to count the stars if you're able to number them. A lot of people think, well, how could Abraham number millions and billions of stars? Abraham couldn't see millions and billions of stars. Abraham could only see about a thousand stars. A lot of people forget that. But anyway, Galileo, he takes that telescope. He points it up into the sky and he sees four things. The first thing he sees is he sees that there, he sees the planet Jupiter. And you all can see it. It's, it's up now in the early evening. You all can see Jupiter. 
If you look at Jupiter through a telescope or even a good pair of binoculars, you'll see that there are four moons going around Jupiter. Geocentrism at that time would not allow that. They said everything orbited the Earth. The Earth is the center of the universe. Everything must go around the Earth. Well, here you see these four moons going around a planet, Jupiter. And, and that turned them upside down. They said, that can't be, that can't be. He says, look at it for yourself. Right here they are. Look at them the next night and they're moved. Look at them the next night and they've moved again. He said, don't believe me, look at it yourself. Another thing he saw when he looked up, he saw that Venus, another planet, has phases. That means that it, since Venus has phases, that Venus must be going Earth. Proves it. If it was going around the Earth, it would be a solid. It, it would be a solid uh, mass like Jupiter, you know, all the time. The third thing he saw was that the moon was that he saw the crater marks on the moon. And in the seas of the moon, it showed it looked like it had been through a war. Now, all of the ancient Hebrews and all of the people before that said only the earth was cursed. God cursed the earth. They thought that the moon was pristine. That's what we thought they were water. And they said the dark areas of the moon are seas, and those are seas is perfect because it's not part of the curse. It can't have a mark on it. It's the way God originally created it. And Galileo saw that thing, and it is marked, pop-marked up. I mean, you all have seen them. Take a shopper's look. It's as rough as the top. And then one more thing that Galileo saw. He pointed his telescope into a part of the sky that was always just kind of fuzzy, always just kind of hazy. Well, we call that today the Milky Way galaxy. You know what he saw when he pointed in there? He just saw stars and stars and more stars and more stars and more stars. All the ancient Greeks and even the Hebrews thought there was only out of a thousand or so stars. That's all they could count. That's all they could see. Galileo said, there's a lot more than that. They're infinite. <laughs> Those four things which God let this one man, a Roman Catholic, let him discover... A scientist turned everything upside down. But you know the thing about it is, they all thought that it contradicted the Bible. All the old Hebrews and all the, the Christians back at that time, because of their presuppositions, because of their assumptions, thought that it uh, proved the Bible wrong. But we know today it doesn't prove the Bible wrong at all. We know today that there are countless stars there, and the Bible doesn't say that there's not countless stars. It does not say that the moon has a smooth surface anywhere in the Bible either. That was an assumption. It also doesn't say that the earth definitively is the center of the universe either, even though some still hold that today. It doesn't say that. It allows that view if you want it, but it doesn't say that. So that's what I mean about the progressive revelation. That's the key one. That's the one that actually started bringing heliocentrism into the limelight. It still took them about two or three centuries after that to really get it understood about heliocentrism. It was when a, uh, I forget his name, a fellow actually was able to use the, the physics of heliocentrism and discovered the planet Neptune. 
and that's what settled it for all of them. He found a planet using the, those principles. But that is what brought it around today. It took centuries, but that's what got it here now. And again, the Bible wasn't wrong in any of it. It's just people's assumptions and presuppositions made them think the Bible was wrong, but when they got into it, it's not wrong at all. It's just God allowing man in his way. He's progressively revealing truths to man that were previously unknown. Okay, that is a really good explanation, and I think that it should be very clear to those of you who are listening that Tim is telling you, um, and he's telling he's telling me, that that the Bible is not wrong. It's not taking a position. It's not giving you a scientific explanation about um, the cosmos. It was understood by uh, the ancient Israelites that the cosmology um, of the Bible would have taught a flat Earth, and it what they weren't wrong because. The Bible's not teaching a specific uh, cosmology as it relates to any one area. Um, but I think that you're going to have a lot of people that are that are getting a little upset with you, Tim, because some people are going to be flat out disagreeing with you that the earth is flat because the Bible teaches it's flat. And you've given a, a, a whole section of your book to the flat earth, um, which is called those pesky flat earthers, the pesky flat earthers. And I want to read a little bit about it, uh, but I want, to t- I want to turn it over to you when I get to um, um, kind of looking at their own words on what they believe about the Bible um, teaching Flat Earth. But you say, you say this, Curiously, the Flat Earthers have been gaining uh, disciples in the last few years while the Ball Earthers have remained fairly stagnant or even um, lost some members. As we mentioned, the modern version of of geocentrism is only around 30 to 40 years old, but the current flat earthism is around 15 years old. It doesn't take much examination to realize the flat earthism is an offshoot of strict geocentrism. Ironically, the global geocentrists' insistence that there are certain terms in the Bible like sunrise, the earth not moving, the sun stood still, etc., must be taken literally, has encouraged the flat earth crowd in their beliefs. They simply take more verses literal than the globe earthers, uh, than the global brothers. Uh, maybe they are the ultimate Bible believers. Um, but then you go on and, and say that the flat earth's belief uh, beliefs are short and simple, and you give a brief list in their own words. So if you wanted to, I wanted to turn it back to you and see if you wanted to um, uh, to touch on that a, a little bit. Well, the the flat earthers, like I said. They have their scriptures. The geocentrists, they have their scriptures. And the flat earthers, they believe they're the ones that's taking the Bible most literal. And see, again, that's what I'm saying. Maybe they are taking it the most literal, but that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it correct. See, that that disallows for the figurative language. That disallows for the relative language. I mean, I could show you all kinds of examples in the Bible, and we don't really have a lot of time for that. That were if you take a figurative statement and take it literal, it, it it turns into absurdity. Over there with Paul, wherever Paul got saved on the Damascus Road, the Lord came and talked to him and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That's interesting enough. He's asking him why is he persecuting his people. Then he says, Is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? Now, here is the God of heaven. The God of heaven that could say anything he wants to say. And he uses the figurative language about Paul kicking against the pricks. And if you don't know what the pricks are, they were they were like an ox 
scapegoat. They were things on a cart to where if an ox was kicking a cart, he would hurt his feet. And that was from stop kicking. And he's saying, well, Paul, it's like you are kicking against the ox cart and hurting yourself. And you're tormenting yourself by doing this. And he's saying, is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? Well, if you're going to be consistent, you have to take that literally too. You have to take it that Paul was actually yoked up on an ox cart. Paul was actually physically kicking backwards and kicking on these spikes and hurting himself. Who believes that? Nobody. Nobody <laughs> believes that. But that's what happens if you take that verse literal. People say, well, uh, I believe if everything is literal, it's not, it's not impossible for a man to harness up in a yoke and kick against a buggy car. He's done stranger things than that. <laughs> he stranger things than that all the time. No. No one believes that. It's absurd. What Paul, or the Lord, was using figurative language to, to actually express truth to Paul. Yeah. What's he saying? You can't take it literal. It's all over the place in the Bible, people. And if you want to do an effective study, do a study on figurative language in the Bible. It will help a lot. In fact, I did quite a bit of studying on figurative language. I learned things doing that. Yeah. I got essentially three chapters on that. Just read those three chapters and then do some more study on your own. But that's where the flat earthers fail. That's where the geocentrists fail. Yeah, they're taking it literal. Yeah, they're taking it literal. Like it says in Job 28, 24, for he looketh to the ends of the earth yeah. and seeth the whole heaven. Well, they say the earth must have ends. Yep. If it says the ends of the earth, the earth must have ends. And the only way it can have ends is if it's flat. The only way it can have an edge is if it's flat. See, that that's the logic. That's the reasoning. But the ends of the earth is figurative language. It's just like we use. It's like someone say, well, you know, I, ends of the earth for you. Yep. They know that there's ends of the earth. It's language. It's obvious. It also, it's speaks about the height of something, reaches up into heaven. Satan, Satan took the Lord and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them in a moment of time. They say, well, how could he do that if the world's not flat? Difference in that or not, you can only see so far. There's something <laughs> had to be supernatural occur there regardless. Yeah. I mean, if you was on the top of Mount Everest, how far could you see? To the end of the earth. Oh, you might be able to see 100 miles. Yeah, you could only see to the edge. See, their arguments are faulty. Yeah, but Tim, d I mean, don't you know that if you got a big enough... They talk about when he sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I was saying, if don't you know that if you got up high enough and but, you had a long enough telescope, you could see the end of the earth? I've got a lag on the internet here. Yeah, he doesn't say that he took up with the Lord and said, here, look at this scope, you know, and see how far you can see. No, there's something supernatural occurred regardless. Yeah. And so he took him up there and said, look all around, and here's the kingdoms of the world. And we don't know exactly how it worked. That's ambiguous as well. Yeah. All we know is that the devil, you know, and the Lord had a event there on that mountain. We don't know how it happened or why it happened, and we don't really need need to know yeah but we know it did happen and 
But that that's the way it is with all the flat earth verses. I mean, it's like as far as the east is from the west, they'll say. Well, see, that shows that the earth is flat. We've got the east clear over here and the west clear over there. Well, then it must be flat. And therefore, you couldn't have an east from the west. That's a figurative language. That's like the four corners of the earth. People use that kind of language all the time today. You know, the ends of the earth, the ends of the world. And they say it must be flat. And, I mean, I'm not going to go through all the verses. They probably have 20, 25 verses that actually are legitimate. They'll bring up a whole lot of other verses that are just, just filler. They don't they don't even help them. Yeah. But, again, these verses that they are relative language or figurative language of the Lord speaking, just like he was speaking, saying that he has tattoos on his hands, which he doesn't. It's, it's all the same thing. Okay, so it sounds like um, if, if you are a flat earther, that what Tim is saying is is you you're going to have a tendency to take the Bible too literal in some places, and he's given examples of anthropomorphisms of of God the Father who is a spirit who takes on human like qualities with eyes and hands and wings and feathers and and uh, having a shadow and and di- different things like that to communicate um, a message to humans who do have those futures that we features to be able to relate to the message being conveyed, essentially. Um, and when you see passages like what's, what, what he just described um, with going up to the mountain, going up to a mountain with the devil taking um, Jesus up to a high mountain and showing him all the kingdoms of the world, there has to be something a little bit more than just the literal application that he literally stood on top of a mountain and showed him every kingdom in the world. Uh, because, obviously, th- there's a spiritual element to it that... that we don't know how that works. We don't know how it would work exactly that the devil was able to do that and show him all the kingdoms, but we know he did. Um, and we know that that really happened, but we don't know how. Um, just like we're describing the creation of, of everything. We know that it did happen, but we don't know how it happened exactly. We know God said that it happened. Do We know that God spoke it into existence. We know that Christ was there and that he formed it. Uh, we know that the Holy Spirit was there and that he breathed life into it. But we don't, how does that happen? Like, how does the Holy Spirit breathe life into something? I don't know how it happens. And I think Tim has taken that position as well, that it's, it seems like um, the, a, a flat earth person would take a position, of, you know, say like Daniel 4. Daniel 4.11 um, says, And the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of the earth. Well, we just addressed a, a portion of that argument with the end of the earth. Well, the earth must, must have an end. Um, or you must have a height, to, um, there's a height that reaches unto heaven. So if you take it too literal, you've got to believe it literally reaches up to heaven and, and the, it, you can see to the end of the earth. But if you could, Tim, tell us what the four things are, those, those four beliefs um, in their own words as it's, as it's related to you know, um, flat, flat earthers and their perspective on, on the Bible. The four beliefs... Uh, you say the flat earthers' beliefs are short and simple. Here's a brief list in their own words. Um, and there's four things. There's four things that you list. I don't know if you've got it pulled up. If you don't, I can I can read it. It's no big deal. Oh, okay. I, I know what you're referring to now. Okay. Okay. Well, they're in their own words. It's very simple what they believe. They believe it's flat and finite. 
and you know it's flat uh, some will say that it's not perfectly flat there's some of them will concede that it might have just a little bit of an arch to it you know like there's don't don't think they all agree with themselves and don't think that all the geocentrists agree with themselves either because they don't now the one thing that they are commonly agree on and really about the only thing is that heliocentrism is a lie <laughs> that's about the only thing that they actually agree on but They'll say that the boundary of the Earth may be circular, but the Earth is most certainly not a sphere. That's what's, what's what they hold in common. And the placement of uh, globes, they say, in classrooms is a conspiracy theory, you know, to, to try to brainwash the public into some nefarious reason. You know, it, it's all a big conspiracy. And you can't have, I've never discussed or met a geocentrist or a flat earther that was not involved in conspiracy theories to one extent or the other. They, they go hand in hand. They, they say that the sky, or the firmament, they'll want to call it, and again, we never discussed really the firmament and what the Bible yeah. has to say about the firmament. But, you know, it sounds like it's firm. You know, we'd say, well, the it's a dome. The Hebrews and the flat earthers say that there's a solid dome over the earth that's kind of like glass. They'll say today it's glass. The Hebrews kind of thought it was metal. But they say today it's glass, and it has the stars embedded in it and all of that. But that same word firmament, which they don't often want to tell you, it says birds fly in the firmament. Go over there in Genesis chapter 1 again. It says that the birds fly in the open firmament. So that means that the firmament is not solid. The firmament is an expanse. The firmament, what we would pretty much call it, is space. You know, everything outside of the earth is space. But anyway, they believe in a solid dome. They believe it's actually there. They don't believe anyone has ever launched any rockets through that dome. They don't believe man has been to moon. They don't believe man has been to the Mars. They don't believe any of that. I mean, man, you know, any anything of man, you know. The spacecraft. They don't believe any spacecraft has been through or past that dome, the firmament. They say it's a solid, impervious barrier that protects both believers and unbelievers from the waters beyond. Now, they believe that there's waters above the earth, and I will concede the Bible says that there's waters above the earth. It says over in Psalms, and the waters above the heavens. Now, you say, what does that mean? I really don't know what that means. Except that there are waters up there somewhere above the heavens. Remember, there are three heavens. The first heaven's the sky. The second heaven is the solar system. So that's two. You know, the second heaven is the visible universe. So that's two. That gives you the plural heavens. So above the sky and above the solar system and the visible universe and the stars, there's water. Uh, that's what it says. And... But then the third heaven is the realm of God. But they say that the water is just direct right above the firmament, which is not very high up. They, they believe that the sun is not near as big as people say it is. They say the sun is just a few hundred miles across or maybe a few thousand miles across, and it's much lower. You know, it's not 90 million miles away. It's just a three or 4,000 miles away. They say the same thing for the moon. They're much closer. They say the stars are just embedded into that dome, that firmament. And 
they're not distant suns and all of that stuff which people believe today. And then they believe that the laws of physics as they exist on the earth are different from those of the sun, the moon, stars, and planets. And it's like you mentioned there earlier, Josh, about the one that you wrote to and you said, if you can answer this question, I'll believe it. Yeah. Well, they are very uh, ingenious uh, at inventing things that they don't have. If there's some problem that they can't solve, or some cause or some theory to make their theory work, no matter how outrageous it is, no matter how how silly it is, it they there's no problem with that. But that's basically, you mentioned the four things they believe. They just believe it's flat, there's a dome over it, there's no universe as it's presented to us today. It's all just uh, just little lights stuck onto a, they say, a glass dome, and the uh, things don't work up there as they do here, such as the laws of physics. It, it's an entirely foreign view to what the man believes today. It's a, it's an ancient view, yeah. but say we have a vast revelation over the Hebrews. The Hebrews didn't no, what Galileo knew. We haven't revelation about Yeah. Um, okay, so, yeah, I think, I, I don't know what, it, what the deal was in the last probably 15 or 20 seconds, but um, you were cutting out pretty good there. Um, I don't know where you want to go from here. We've been going for about an hour and 36 minutes, um, and that's totally fine. I, I know we've got some other, another article that I had um that I had linked that we could look at if we wanted to, and, and some other Bible verses. I know that you've you've addressed a number of different Bible verses and given different examples as well. But um, where would you where would you like to go from here in the conversation, um, or should we open it up to questions or and and keep the conversation going as questions come in? How do you how do you want to go from here, Tim? Oh, if I get a few questions, that's okay. I've noticed a little stuttering here. My internet's been, uh, you're kind of pixelated too. It's because I, so many people at home because of this yeah. virus, the internet's getting bottlenecked and overloaded, and it's causing a little bit of a stutter. But it's up to you. Okay. Um, well, let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this article, and I want to open it up to the audience. For those of you who are still watching live, if you want to call in with a question, you can do that. Let me put that number up on the screen. It's uh, 816-866-0025. And uh, just call in with your question. And if, if we're, we'll, we'll stop the conversation as, as, we, as the uh, calls come in if you wanted to call. Uh, but now would be the time to call in with your question. And uh, let's go ahead while that's happening. And if anybody has any questions, um, then we, we can keep looking at this article here. And if no, nobody calls, that's totally fine too. But... Um, but okay, so this article comes from. Let me pull it up here. It comes from. Well, okay, so it's uh, it's a book review. Where did I, where did I put it? Ah, there it is. Okay, so it's Lockhaven.edu, and uh, this article was written in July of 1987. Uh, it was revised in 1995. Um, and it's it's about it's the Flat Earth Bible, so it was reprinted from the Bulletin of the Tyconian Society, 
And uh, there's a number of different things that they address here. They talk about strong arguments for flat earth. They talk about weak arguments for flat earth. Um, and, and they link it to different Bible verses. But um, in particular, I want to pull this up on the screen so you guys can see it as well. Um, so it, it says here that um, in the order of creation, they say the Genesis creation story provides uh, the first key to Hebrew cosmology. The order of creation makes no sense from a conventional perspective, but is perfectly logical from a flat earth uh, viewpoint. The earth was created on the first day, and it was without form and void. And on the second day, a vault, the firmament of the King James Version, was created to divide the waters, some being above and some being below. Only on the fourth day were the sun, moon, and stars created, and they were placed in, not above, the vault. And then he talks about the vault of heaven being a crucial concept, uh, where he, he describes it um, in the Old Testament showing up 17 times, where the he Hebrew word is rakia, and it means beaten out. Now, you talked about it a little bit, um, where the, the Hebrews would have thought that it was made of metal, uh, but the flat earthers today would, would think that it's some sort of um, uh, kind of ice ice layer or something like that, and the stars, um, the cosmology are built into it, and it ro it would rotate around the Earth. So uh, he talks about in Job thirty seven eighteen, and and he he asks this question, where he says Elihu asks Job, can you beat out the vaults of the skies as he does, hard as a mirror of cast metal? And he says, Elihu, Elihu's question shows the Hebrews considered the vault of heaven a solid physical object. Such a large dome would be a tremendous feat of engineering. The Hebrews, and supposedly Yahweh himself, considered it exactly that. And this point is hammered home by five scriptures. Job 9.8, who by himself spread out the heavens. 19, Psalm 19.1, the heavens tell uh, or would declare the glory of God, where he says the vault of heaven reveals his handiwork. Um, I would imagine that's, obviously it's not King James, I would think that um, that's, I'm not sure what version that is, but where he says the vault of heaven, I would imagine the King James would use firmament. Uh, but Psalm 102.25, the heavens uh, are the, thy handiwork. Isaiah 45.12, 12, I with my own hands stretched out the heavens and caused all their host to shine. And then 48. 13 says, with my right hand, I formed the expanse of the sky. So he says it's either an illusion or it's a physical dome, essentially. But Tim, what would your take be uh, on what we're, what we're talking about right here? Is it related to that vault or that dome or that firmament uh, that you were, you were describing and alluding to as, as we've kind of come along through this conversation today? Well, it's like I say, the Hebrews, they understood to be a dome. They understood the earth had a dome which had uh, anchors onto the earth. And the dome, is, uh, like I said, they thought it was metal. And it had these little lights in it, which are the stars. The one thing that the, the Hebrews and the flat earthers today have a little problem, you know, they have a little problem trying to define is how, how does the sun and the moon move independently? of these stars. See, if they're set in the firmament tube, that firm, how can it be solid when you have the sun and the moon and also Jupiter and Venus and the other planets and Mars, the planets that they could see, moved within this firmament? They don't, don't really have a good explanation for that. Of course, they come up with, with stuff, but 
But that very fact right there shows that it, it's not that firm. If things can move in it, if you can have come and meteors come, it's not firm, is it? And it's like I mentioned earlier over in Genesis 1.20. It says that birds fly in the firmament. So the firmament means that, to me, and they'll say that it, the, the Hebrew word means kind of spread out. And a lot of them today will say it means expanse. And it can be defined as an expanse. To me, it's just a separation. It's like the atmosphere. The atmosphere is what separates us from space. We have this atmosphere that goes up, you know, 100,000 miles or so. And it has oxygen, nitrogen, and every, all, every other gas in it. But it is what we call the sky. And then above that, you have the actual vastness and, and almost voidness, emptiness of space. And it's just an expanse separation. And we're separated. Now, I don't want to hear Mary. We may have lost the Internet. Yeah, I can hear you. Like no, I was sharing my screen with you. I don't know. Oh, okay. Can you see that? Can you see my screen here? Uh, yes, I can see that now. Um, so this is on uh, the lockhaven.edu um, website, and it's describing now um, kind of the cosmos as described in the Book of Enoch. And I think that the Book of Enoch is certainly getting a lot more attention today uh, with any 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 group that you want to use to describe end times or, or um, the events that took place in Genesis six, um, or um, even more specific, the, the related to the conversation we're having right now, where you can see you've got a model that would have a dome, you've got windows uh, of heaven, you've got the sun and the moon, and then you've got the rotation within the atmosphere, the first heaven. And they would say that the cosmos would be built into this firmament, this this hard surface here. So I think that they would say this the sun and the moon is something that rotates inside of of uh, that firmament in that model. Um, but you know they they go into de describing the ends of the earth, the uh, the sun and the moon, and and that relation of it because they're saying in Psalm 19 uh, verses four and six is where you've got. Um, let me see if I can pull it up here. Is is where you've got um, kind of a, kind of a key point to the conversation where it, it says, uh, "Give me just a second. It's loading here." It says, um, "Their line is gone uh, through throughout. It is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And them um, hath he set a tabernacle for the sun." which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and a circuit under the end of the earth, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Um, so he's, he's describing kind of what, what they're saying is the circuit of the sun within this model, and they're, they're saying obviously the moon would be a part of that. But anyways, um, what would you... What would you what would your response be with for people who want to go to the Book of Enoch um, to support a flat Earth or a ge geocentric model? Well, the Book of Enoch, of course, is a non-canonical book. It's not scripture. It's an old book. It's an ancient book, and you'll find a lot of stories about where people say that even the apostles 
quoted from, I'll say that, I don't, but that's just just more assumption, more speculation. So you cannot, if you want to read the book of Enoch for a historical perspective, that's good. But you can't read it for scripture. You can't read it for trying to find out what God has to say about something. And it's like, for instance, I know in the book of Enoch, I think it may be in that article that you mentioned, it says that an angel took Enoch or someone to the place where the sun and the moon reside, you know, when they're not being used. That is, during the uh, daylight, the moon is hid away in a compartment. And during the night, the sun is hid away in a compartment. Now, see, that just that does not work in any geocentric scenario or any flat earth scenario. You've seen the models of the, the flat earth that they have today. Yeah. It shows that there's always the, the sun is always shining somewhere. Yeah. Night comes just when the sun is too far away to see it. That's their argument. It doesn't go somewhere and hide until the next day. That's what the but, the but the book of Enoch teaches that the sun goes somewhere and hides, you know, during the night, and the moon goes somewhere and hides during the day. That just shows how silly that is. It doesn't fit any cosmology. It doesn't help the flat Earth or the geocentrists. But concerning the sun and the moon moving within the firmament, I know they like to say, well, here, you know, the the sun and the moon, they're exceptions. Uh, they're not really in the firmament. All you gotta do is go over to Genesis chapter one and see what it says about them. I'll read the verse right now. It says, "And then God made two great light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also." And then it says, "And God set them in the firmament between the stars." There's no distinction between the stars. Or the sun or the moon, which here are not named sun or moon. They're named two great lights, which that's another issue. But you'll notice that God says he set them there. So if the stars are set there, then the sun and moon should be set there some way too. So if the firmament is firm, how does the sun and the moon move when they're set in the firmament? I believe that it's quite obvious that they're just set in there in the fact that they live there. It's not set there it's not set they're not set in there in that uh, they're fixed and solid and in some solid dome no what it says is it just means that they're put into the firmament because that's where they reside see they can't have it both ways they can't say that the stars are immovable and the sun and moon aren't using the scripture because right here it uses the same terminology for both of them yeah okay no that's a good point and I've got it pulled up on here as well um, in the Bible Analyzer software program, but I do want to, we don't have any any calls coming in, and that's totally fine. We had a lot more views at the beginning. We're coming up on two hours, but we do have one question from, from Gary. I want to put it up on the screen for those of you who are uh, not viewing on YouTube right now. He says, Brother Tim, is, is progressive revelation different than advanced revelation? Meaning advanced revelation oversees the Greek and Hebrew uh, can't show us. And he had asked a question earlier uh, about progressive revelation um, as it's related to the King James Bible. And obviously that would be a different different conversation um, for a, a, a different, obviously different topic. But I, I think that's a, a relevant question to what, kind of what's the difference between progressive revelation um, and advanced revelation 
uh, if I don't I don't know maybe he's maybe he's making a reference that maybe is is there kind of d- distinguish between advanced revelation and progressive revelation and how it's related to the Greek and, and the Hebrew in this particular side of the conversation. I hope I got that right, Gary. If not, well, yeah, the just, way. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the way I understand it, the advanced revelation would be kind of a a type of progressive revelation. It, it's, you know, progressive revelation, something is revealed as you progress along in time. Like the book of Acts, you'll find doctrines are different at the end of the book of Acts than they are at the beginning of the book of Acts. The advanced revelation would be something that wasn't seen before. Something that was in in the text, but because of either whatever reason, I mean, I guess there could be any kind of reason, for whatever reason, this wasn't seen before, and as an advanced revelation, something that's that's uh, new, that's not been seen by anyone else before, and, you know, and I can say that's another subject that uh, it, it deals with, it, it's re- really kind of uh, subjective. I mean, who determines whether something's an advanced revelation or not? I mean, that is, how do they prove it? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to prove it. And that's where it gets down to the nitty-gritty. I mean, uh, there's a lot of things called advanced revelation. But when you get right down to it, they can't prove it at all. That's really, from what I understand of it, that's what I understand it to Okay, so we've got one other question that's come in, and uh, it has to do... We've got two other questions that came in. And um, this one is from John Nansen. I hope I'm saying your last name right. He says, ask him where his authority is derived. Where does he think he gets it, and why is it more authoritative than anyone else's? Anyone's. I, I suppose that he's, he's making a reference back to... Um, you'd given a description on um, God's perspective of cosmology as it's related to the Bible, that the Bible um, the Bible is ambiguous, that an ancient Israelite could read it and interpret it and have a flat earth model that would work in, and have scriptural support for it, even though that's not the intent of what God is doing as, as he wrote, wrote the Bible. And maybe you can clear that up and speak to uh, John's question there and kind of give him an answer on what is your authority if on uh, on on, I would I would say maybe um, take it a step further and answer a second part of that question. Um, is it is it what would be your authority to say? Well, a flat earther is being too literal in their in their reading of the Bible to get a a flat Earth interpretation, a flat Earth model. Well, it's like concerning the flat Earth. How you can show that the flat Earth is wrong is by looking around. See, we there was no way that the Hebrews could really, they didn't have binoculars, they didn't have telescopes, they didn't have spaceships, they didn't have radio, they didn't have any of these things. It would be much, much more difficult for them to determine that the world wasn't flat. Today, it's not difficult at all. If you've got a pair of binoculars and you go to the beach, go to the ocean, and here's the key thing. I've heard all the arguments about people saying, you know, saying that, uh, oh, well, it doesn't work and the Earth's not not really curved it's an optical illusion you have to go when the air temperature matches the water temperature go to any body of water on a clear day when the air temperature is pretty much matches the water temperature 
that that way you will not have any interference you will not have any mirages take you a pair of binoculars and simply watch a ship go down over the horizon you'll see that the farther it goes the lower it goes that was one of the things reasons people started to people that had good eyesight could see that back in the old days people that that, that did ships and sailors, they realized that when they sailed north and south, they saw an entirely different group of stars in the sky. When they would sail north, the stars would raise in the horizon on the north. And then when they go to the south, they would raise from in the horizon to the south. That, that wouldn't work in a flat earth. Now, I know the flat earth people, they come up with all kinds of arguments, you know, so-called proofs. They say, well, that'll work in our system. No, it won't. I've, I even saw one saying, well, the, it, the reason it does that is they're reflecting the stars. The starlight is reflecting on and it's reflecting back and forth and making it appear that they're moving back. Well, that doesn't work. The, the old sailors, you know, they got to thinking and they looked up and said, you know, we go north and south. The stars change. And how can that happen if unless we're kind of going on a curve? And it was things like this that made them start thinking, you know, the earth is not flat. Today, it's simple. Today, it's very, very simple. Just uh, take your binoculars and look out and watch. You can see the curvature of the earth. You can actually, I know they deny, you can see the curvature of the earth from an airplane. If you got a big wind in an airplane and you're up high enough, just uh, look at the top of the little straight edge there that, 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 that you close your window. And look out through there, and you'll be able to see a slight curvature. There's people got pictures of this. It's something that you can see. It's something that you can demonstrate. It's because of the revelation that God has allowed man to get to, to this point, is what gives us the authority to say that the earth is not flat, because you can demonstrate it's not flat. You can demonstrate a, a thousand different ways that it's not flat. People say, leave the pictures from NASA. You can't believe that they're all uh, manufactured. No, not all of them's manufactured. They have single image pictures of the Earth being as round and as their satellites are going away, taking progressive pictures that it goes away. If you don't believe NASA, what about the Russians? The Russians have a satellite that takes a picture of the Earth every 30 minutes. It's a 121 gigabyte photograph of the Earth every 30 minutes, and it takes a picture of the whole Earth in one frame, one picture. So you don't believe U.S.? You can believe maybe you'll believe the Russians. <laughs> it's it's easily that the Earth is not flat, and so that is the authority that we can use to show that and to better understand the Bible, and it actually show, shows that. The Lord wrote the Bible, and it wasn't written by man because it accommodates all that. I mean, even though the Hebrews look at all those passages and say they're flat to them, I look at them and say, well, they're figurative language. And they are, because I can demonstrate that the earth is not flat. That's good. Okay, so we've got two more questions. We've got a, a follow-up or a clarification from John. And uh, I want to preface it with this. I, I was having a conversation with a Roman Catholic recently, and it's, uh, it's related to the relationship of, of Scripture and tradition. And obviously, uh, the, um, um, the Council of Trent is what set the, um, the Scripture on even par 
with the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church, and that that obviously wasn't until the 16th cen- 16th uh, century. Um, but you know what what you've got here is is a conversation of trying to figure out what your authority is as as it's related to an interpretation of Scripture. So if you could. Um, give your answer to someone who who has that question for you. Like, what makes your interpretation of, of Scripture authoritative over anyone else's um, interpretation of Scripture? And, and I'm sure that you've got a lot to say on this. I know that you've written a lot on this. And uh, so I'll just turn it over to you. You're going to have a lot more <laughs> to say on it than I, than I will. Well, I'm not going to... I'm not going to you know, go on and on about it, but I believe the King James Bible, I believe God has preserved his word. I believe he preserved it in the King James Bible because uh, and basically the single, uh, there's a lot of reasons people say they, you know, believe the King James Bible is superior to others. The reason I believe it is because God used it more than any other Bible. God has used the King James Bible more than he's used the original manuscript. With people, I, I don't know. The King James Bible, it, Ten years ago, almost, turned 400 years old. It's still the most popular Bible on the Internet. It's the most searched for Bible on Google. That's unbelievable, a 400-year-old book. And, you know, some of the things I've been saying in some of the new versions might not work as well because they change the words. They change the words. But here, it's like the firmament. They'll, they'll use different words. They'll, they'll say expanse. Some of them will say different things, you know. They all, they're not consistent. But the, I use the King James Bible as a basis for this. I believe it's the authority. It's my authority. And I try as much as I can to let it be the definitive, definitively state what it says. And when I read through there and I see all the ambiguity, I mean, there's questions. There's enough questions. It's just in Genesis chapter 1. No one with any cosmology can answer them at all. They can't answer how God did any of that. It was what he says that he did do. As I said, really, at the very start, God is more interested in the results. It's kind of like he went through creation and said, I made this, 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 I made this. Now we're done with that. Now let's get on to the important stuff. Yeah. You know, he spends one chapter on the creation, spends another chapter in chapter two talking a little bit about onto the real things. Starting with chapter 3, that starts into the fall of man and gets into all the plan of redemption and all of that. He spends little time on the creation things, which seem to fascinate a lot of us so much. But to make it short, my authority is the King James Bible. My, interpret- my interpretation, you know, I can only see three. I'll briefly tell you what they are. Three ways to look at this. I mean, like I said, my position is the Bible does not make any dogmatic or definitive statements concerning cosmology. That's, that's the way I see it. That's the easiest way for me to take it. What's one of the other alternatives? One of the other alternatives is this, if the flat earth or geocentrist statements are taken as definitive fact, if they're taken as woodenly literal, well, then... Reality, because we can see that the earth is not flat. Thing is, God does not ask a person to believe something that's not true. He'll allow them to, but 
You know, it's like for myself. I know I'm wrong on lots of things. Every Christian on the face of this earth is wrong on doctrine. I just don't know what they are. <laughs> the Lord has allowed me to live. I'll be 60 years old this year. The Lord's allowed me to live this long. And I know... I won't know it till I get to heaven. There's a lot of got flat. Let me believe it. Let me write on these things. If I get any, maybe he won't let me find out the truth at all. But I don't know what they are. Yeah. But the thing is, the Lord does not dangle an apple in front of our eye and say that's not an apple. He doesn't give us something and tell us that it's not true. And if he, if the, if you take the Bible woodenly, strictly literal, as the flat earthers do, well then, we don't have an accurate perception of reality. It's, it's, a, it's, it's surprising that we're even alive, because the world is not as it appears. Because it's not flat. It's not flat. It can be proven a hundred different ways it's not flat. It can be demonstrated that it's not flat. If the Bible says it's flat, well then, well of course the Bible's true, but we're so messed up, we can't understand reality. And if we understand reality, how we can't? How can we even trust our eyes in knowing that we're reading the Bible right? See, it all makes a vicious circle. How can we trust our own eyes if we? Can't? How can we? How do we know that those words being the same Bible? How can we? How can we say one's right and one's wrong when we're using the same eyes for both? But anyway. That's the the second viewpoint. If the flat earthers are right and taking it strictly literal, well then our perception of reality is totally wrong. And the third one, if the statements are taken as extreme poetry, so to speak, you know, metaphoric words out there to take the entire Bible in a metaphorical sense. Nothing's literal. It's just a it's just kind of a play. It's just kind of a story. You just read into it whatever you want. Well, that's that. That's I. That, I guess that's a valid approach, but it's not an accurate approach. If you take that approach, you can't definitely believe anything. Because my idea, my metaphorical analogies of what the Bible says might be entirely different than yours. I mean, that's the, that's the attitude people use to you go know, to deny the. Millennium, deny the tribulation. It's, that's just metaphorical language. You can't believe Revelation. It's metaphorical. It's just stories. Just take out of it whatever you can use to help you because it's not real. It's just a story. That's the only three approaches I can find. Now, if, you, if, uh, if others of you out there got them, email them to me. I'll be glad to hear them. One of them is my, the first one the Bible's not making definitive statements. The second one is if the Bible is making definitive statements, then we have no concept of reality. And thirdly, that all the statements in the Bible are metaphorical and we can't really take any of them at face value and then we're in a mess that way too. All right, so, so that's how I arrived at the So Tim this that's how I arrived at the conclusions I had. This live stream was posted in a uh, Catholic Protestant um, Facebook group. And uh, and and John is a Catholic uh, who would pit tradition against sola scriptura. Um, and and he's taken the position that the authority that the Protestants have um, does not come from tradition, that it has to come from our own interpretation 
to give our own validity to our own interpretation. So, so he's taken the position that sola scriptura leaves, uh, leaves the Protestants in, in a mess because we've got all of these different interpretations, whether it's flat earth, whether it's geocentrism, whatever it is, and uh, that we can all come to different conclusions because our interpretation of Scripture can be different because we don't have the authority that the Catholic Church has to tell us how we should interpret the Bible or to tell us what the interpretation of the Bible is. Um, so when I, I was just talking to uh, a, a friend of mine um, on Twitter, and uh, an, another Catholic apologist got involved in the conversation, and we were talking about sola scriptura, and we're talking about how we can know that the that, a, that an interpretation without the tradition of a Catholic Church to tell us what the interpretation is um, can still be correct, and and Catholics don't like this answer because you it, it eliminates the magisterium from telling what you shouldn't shouldn't believe as as it's related to Scripture. But here's the answer. The Bible tells us that Scripture is only interpreted by Scripture and that it's the interpretation belongs to the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is going to be the interpreter of Scripture, and the only way that you as a Christian can know what um, the correct interpretation of Scripture is is by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Now, what does that mean? What I mean is you take one portion of the Bible and say, well, I think it means this. You can't just isolate it and have a proof text to say, well, this is what my interpretation of this particular passage is because God has set up a system that, that you have to have uh, two or three witnesses in order for a thing to be true, and that would be two or three other passages that support or, or deny what that verse is saying. So you get some people who say, well, God has unconditionally elected some people from before the foundation of the earth, um, that they were, before they were even born or had done any good or evil, that they would spend an eternity in heaven with Christ, that they would eventually get saved. And, and others, vice versa, they were, they were designed and created before the foundation of the earth that they would go to hell. But uh, without getting into the interpretation of that, the methodology for understanding what is and isn't correct about that statement is comparing Scripture with Scripture to see whether the thing is true or not. Uh, and the same thing goes completely contrary to what the Catholic Church teaches you. And I told my friend this, who was a Catholic, I said, you know, just, just know how tradition is, has contradicted Scripture in multiple places throughout history. And not only that, but they've misinterpreted Scripture through tradition. Just see the, the mess that they've done with Matthew 16, 18, thinking that, that Peter was the first pope, or that Peter was the, the rock upon the, which the church was founded. I mean, just look at that interpretation. We, I could tear that to pieces with any Catholic. And uh, so it's not like your tradition has given you any authority as a Catholic in the matter. But Tim, I would, I would just ask you, um, what, do you, what do you say to someone who says that you don't have any authority when your interpretation doesn't come uh, from the tradition of the Catholic Church? Well, <laughs> church that knew Galileo for what he saw in the sky. And this is the same Catholic church that changed. After a couple hundred years, they finally found out. The so see, the Protestants that believe this and believe that and knew that, it's also Roman eating geocentrists out there. He's the one that wrote about, made that movie, The Principle. He's the one that wrote this big book, Galileo Was Wrong, and he's at odds against the Catholic Church. So, the fella, uh, he has no interest to argue with each other. Catholics do too. 
I mean, I can take you to places online where Catholics are vehemently are this geocentrism. And the official Roman Catholic position, though, is heliocentrism, from what I understand. Isn't that amazing? And they were the very ones that were persecuting Galileo because he was first said that back in the 1600s. So the argument, uh, the argument doesn't hold water. Like you say, it's scripture with scripture. Compare scripture with scripture. You don't need anyone else to tell you what it says. All, all you need is the Bible. All you need is yeah, that's good. I don't, there was a little bit of feedback there. That was kind of weird. Um, but let's uh, okay. So let's wrap it up. Um, I think we've we've got another question. There's, I I want to get this question really quick. And uh, Toto Scriptura wrote this in here a while ago. I, I know I haven't got to it, but um, he says, uh, where was it? I thought I saw it. Um, okay, so. Uh, and we'll get your answer on this real quick and then wrap it up from there. Uh, he says, Tim says, Tim said hyperliteralism is insane, is an insane position to hold, but he just used the hyper hyperliteralism uh, view of Enoch in order to, in, in, in regard to what it says about the sun and the moon. Isn't that inconsistent? I know that was a while ago. <laughs> we've been going for a while, but um, what would your, what would your take be on that? I know we've talked about hyperliteralism a lot, but... How would you respond? Well, I would ask him, well, then what does it mean? When the angel takes him and shows him where the sun and the moon reside, what does that mean? What makes you indicate what's the, that that should not be taken literal? I mean, the sun, the sun never stops. That can be demonstrated. But yet the book of Enoch says it stops. The book of Enoch says that it's, uh, it sleeps all day. I mean, sleeps all night. The moon sleeps all day. So how else would you take it? See, the natural way to take words in any language is you first take them literal. If they cannot be taken literal, then you look for the figurative language. That's the way we all look at things. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of an ingrained thing in human nature. When someone says something, you read something, you first take it literal. If it doesn't work literal, you take it figurative. So what's the reason why we should take that figurative, what it says in the book of Enoch? Of course, what's the point in even talking about that, that book anyway? We might as well be talking about war and peace because one's about as inspired as the other. Um, okay, so let's get to our final point, and I want to give an, an opportunity, as I do in every, uh, at least I try to in every broadcast that we do, um, on this podcast is is give an opportunity to tie this back to the gospel. We've talked about ad advanced revelation. We've talked about progressive revelation. We've spent some time on interpretive methods. Um, and we've talked about a lot of different things in two and a half hours. But Tim, if you could take uh, this message as it's related to um, cosmology and as it ties back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you could... Um, I, you hear so much about um, people talking about uh, general revelation and the gospel being written in the stars. How would you take something from general revelation and use that to point somebody to Christ? Well, you could look, and it's like it says in Psalms, again, we quoted Psalms 19.1. You can learn the 
there is a God and a creator because there is a creation. It's really that simple. If there is a creation or if there is a creature, well, then there is a creator. Now, we've spoken a lot about Genesis 1, God creating the heaven and the earth. But later on, here's some more of the progressive revelation from a spiritual sense and from a uh, scriptural sense. We find out exactly in the New Testament who that creator is. That creator is Jesus Christ. It says over in 1, verse 3, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So that's a perfect example of progressive revelation. It was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, or before his incarnation known as the Word, was the one that did the actual creating back there. And this is the same Jesus Christ that died on the cross. And it's a profound thing to even think about. The God that said those words back there, the God that waved his hand, or so to speak, figurative language, waved his hand and created everything just by his word. He's the same God that came and took on our nature. He was born of a woman, born under the law, and this for three and a half years and suffered many of the same things we do, only in a lot worse state, like the temptations from Satan. And then, all because of our need, and all because of what we have to have if we're going to not dwell and not live in the place called hell, which he spoke about more than he spoke about heaven, he came and died in our place on the cross. Now, that's the mystery of godliness that John or Paul talks about. The mystery of godliness. We can't understand that because it's a mystery. We can believe because the Bible says it, and we know that there is a creator because there is a creation, and we know now from the Bible that this creator was Jesus Christ, and we know this creator came and died on a cross. He deserved to die on the cross. And that's where you bring the gospel into it. It all revolves around that. The Bible itself ties it all together. You know, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he rose again the third day, also according to the scriptures. Us and any of us that are willing to accept that and trust on that and believe that and receive that as their own, he'll save them. And then you will be part and inside, because you will be inside the very person that did all the creating in Genesis 1. And that's all of it in a nutshell. Thank you, brother. That's good, brother. Hey, Tim, thank you again for coming on. It's always good uh, to have conversations with you. This has been a good one. Obviously, you've spent a lot of time on the subject. And at the end of the day, guys, I think that we've got a clear message that uh, when it comes to understanding the cosmology uh, of, of the Bible, um, it's pointing you back to Christ one way or the other. It's showing you who the Creator is. It's showing that you that you are the creation, that He's a personal being who has entered into uh, time to have a relationship with you. Christ became a man from eternity past and uh, was born of a virgin. He lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead. 
and he 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 died specifically for you. So I think that's uh, obviously Tim um, the most important part of the conversation that we we would have in this conversation today is is obviously being able to point this back to Christ and and you're welcome on any time. I know we're we're talking about having a conversation in the future. Uh, with a roundtable on dispensationalism. We'll see what we can do to organize that. Um, but in the meantime, man, stay safe. And I hope that I, I wish you and your family the best. And uh, we'll catch you up soon. So anyways, thanks again for coming on. Well, thank you very much, brother, for having me the second time. Maybe I didn't blow it too bad the first time when we talked <laughs> about the gap. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I really, I really enjoy these conversations. So, I mean, like I say, this this is a subject that's, but some are interested in it. And I believe it's uh, just understanding the figurative language and how the Bible, the Bible uses words will help us in a lot of ways. I mean, it'll help us in ways not even related to cosmology. It'll help us understand what the Lord is is wanting to do and to show it better for. Yeah. I enjoy uh, being here. It's always nice having the uh, little uh, discussions, and and sometime again, we Lord willing, we'll try it again. That'll work. And by the way, guys, if you haven't had a chance to check that out, go check that debate up that that Tim and I had on the gap theory. Um, I I take the position that there is a a, a gap between Genesis one one and Genesis one two. Uh, that the devil and the angels were present um, during the creation, not created in the creation, that they were there celebrating the crea- creative events um, with with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 as that took place. And Tim holds the position that it was all created in Genesis 1, that the angels were created in the creative days mentioned. Um, so yeah, go check that out. It was a, it was a good debate, a good discussion. A lot of guys can get pretty divided on the subject and uh, anathematize anyone who disagrees with them. We didn't do that. We don't do that. And the same with the flat earth and geocentrism and heliocentrism. We believe, uh, at least I don't want to speak for Tim, but I do, I, and I think you'll agree with me, that um, I don't think it's a, salvi- a salvation issue to believe the earth is flat. I think that when you get to heaven, God will be like, all right, look down there. That's a, that's a round ball. And uh, it's just not that big a deal as it's related to salvation. Um, you can still be a Christian, be a flat earther. You can still be a Christian, be a geocentrist. Um, but but um, <laughs> I do believe that it's it's a round ball. It's floating through space, and it is it is what we believe. It is uh, based off of what what science has showed us in in conjunction with what the Bible teaches us about it. I don't think they're at odds against each other. But um, anyways, uh, Tim, I think you'll agree with that. I want to give you a chance to respond before I close it out here. Yes, has absolutely with salvation, none whatsoever. Yeah. You can believe. <laughs> what's the old cosmology? They believe that the Earth was on a uh, on a a turtle's a, back. That's what some of the old cultures used to believe. Yeah. You can believe that if you want to. And you know the thing is, the Bible will not prove you wrong because it doesn't say one way or the other. So if you want to believe that, that's fine. The most important thing is believe Jesus Christ. Believe on him as you'll see. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to cut to my closing scene. Thanks again for coming on. We'll catch up with you soon. Thanks again, Tim Morton, for coming on. And uh, guys, here's an update on what to expect. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be debating a a, uh, Unitarian 
on the Trinity. Obviously, I'm a Trinitarian. He's a Unitarian. Uh, he's, he's what you call, um, or what they call themselves, Biblical Unitarians. Uh, so they, they believe in a subordination role of Christ, that he was a created being, he was not a pre-existent nature, uh, that he's, he's um, subject to what uh, God tells him, God the Father, as his authority. The Holy Spirit would also be a created being who is a, more of a force or a power that comes from the Father, uh, but, but that they do not make up one God, um, that Jesus was a human, um, and there's a lot of different problems with that. And you've got some of the cults that fall under the Unitarian umbrella, which would be Jehovah's Witnesses, Christadelphians, the Church of God, and uh, uh, different groups like that. But that should be a good conversation, a fun conversation. And along those lines, we're working um, to find a debate uh, opponent for Mark Ward on the topic, the readability of the King James Bible. We're also working to find an, a debate opponent for Jonathan Sheffield on uh, the Textus Receptus versus the critical text and how the Textus Receptus is what God's providence has providentially preserved throughout history. And uh, you can find it in the TR and the KJV today. So anyways, guys, I hope that was a blessing to you today. Um, let me know if you have any questions. Always feel free to call, email, or message me on Facebook. As always, please like, share, and uh, subscribe to this channel. Uh, God bless, guys. We'll, we'll catch up with you later. And uh, that's it. I'm out.